Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. The Old Testament book of Job. Now we're continuing with our creation seminar and we're continuing with the segment we started last week. Last week we began to describe the Genesis flood and began to give a little bit of the flood model. Explaining a little bit that God had created the world. Then 4,400 years ago he created a great flood to destroy the world except for uh, Noah and his family that was on the ark. During that time, God laid most of the geological strata and also creating other evidence that there was a flood and that the judgment of God was real. With this, we now continue with the same idea, continuing with the flood model and explaining some more details that surround this event. And we're going to discuss today about the ice age. With this, let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come up to you tonight, we're so thankful that we could come and that we could learn from science, learn from you to see how it all fits together, that our faith can be encouraged. And as we come up to you, Lord, I know myself, and I'm asking that you would help me just to settle down in your will, to relax in what you have to do, that you could put things decently in order and that we can trust you. Calm my spirit and calm my heart, Lord. Thank you that even in this, that we could look up to you. Encourage people's faith tonight. That you're a God who is decently in order, a God of evidence, a God that is real. Lord, we do thank you for all the things that you teach us. Fill me with your spirit and guide me by your hand even now that we could trust your leadership. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, <laughs> when we start talking about science and the G different eras, without a doubt, there are times that come up, what about the Ice Age? I know that when I was a kid, that was a very serious concern, meaning how does the Ice Age fit within a biblical model? Without a doubt, there was an Ice Age. Does that fit in the Bible? Do we find evidence that there was an Ice Age? Well, let's just see how it fits in the Bible. We start with the book of Job, and we're going to look at several passages to start off with. In Job chapter 6 and verse 16, it says, which are brackish, blackish by the reason of ice and wherein the snow is helped. It continues on in Job chapter 9 and verse 30, if I wash myself with snow water and make my hands so never clear. Once again, chapter 37, verse 6, for he saith to the snow, be thou of the earth and likewise to the small rain and to the great rain of his strength. As we go on, continuing in chapter 37, out of the south cometh a whirlwind and cold out of the north. By the breath of God, frost is given and the breath of the waters is straightened. 
Again, in chapter 38, verse 22, hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail? We see all these references to cold weather inside of the book of Job. Notice again, Job 38, verse 29, out of whose womb came the ice and the hoary frost of heaven who had gendered it? Now, there are more references to snow, cold, frost, or ice in the book of Job than any other biblical book. Now, this is going to be very significant to have all of these references to cold ice of some sort. Why is this significant? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Bible says in Job 1.1, it gives us the setting of the book of Job. It says that there was a man in the land of Uz. Now, that's not the land of Oz. It's the land of us. Where is this biblical land of us? Well, on a Bible map, you will find it here in this place called Edom. So Edom is going to be equivalent to this land of us inside of Edom. Well, why is this significant? Well, it's significant because of what Edom looks like today. What does Edom look like today? Edom is a barren wasteland. It is a desert land. Not a place known for snow, it is a place known for its desert heat. It is hot, it is barren, it is lifeless. It is not a place where there's a lot of precipitation, a lot of rain, much less snow or ice. That makes it very significant. In addition, we believe that Job was written shortly after the flood. And so he would be still suffering through the effects of the biblical flood. And so when he is writing, he's writing in a time shortly after the flood, and he is making reference that there's a lot of snow and ice and stuff. Again, for us in Wisconsin, we're familiar with snow and ice. But for a desert place, that is not something commonly associated with ice or frost or snow. (laughs) Now, we know that there is evidence that there was an ice age. Even Wisconsin, where we're currently at, there is still evidence of glaciers and glacier markings within the state we live in. Clearly, there was glaciers at one time had covered Wisconsin. And give enough time in the winter, you probably still feel like there's a glacier all covering things up. We are known for cold up here. Even today in Antarctica, it is covered by a glacier. There is glaciers all over. we know that with the glaciers, they left all kinds of evidence that as the glaciers were quickly expanding, it would actually dig into the ground and begin to roll over dirt that they would call these moraines. And they would live grooves and carvings all throughout the surface, wherever these glaciers would go. Now, as we start considering a little bit more about how the Ice Age fits within the Bible, we come to another significant question. What froze the mammoths? We're all familiar with the mammoths, that if there was any creature associated with the Ice Age, it would be the mammoths. Well, let's see a little bit more about it. We know that mammoths were very huge creatures, very big animals. (laughs) And that we find all kinds of evidence and skeletons of these mammoths in these frozen regions. This was a mammoth that was frozen and put in display in St. Petersburg. In fact, all throughout the northern part of the world, they find these ivory graveyards that they would find and dig up. Anybody know what kind of things ivory was used for back in the day? 
everything. Uh, peg legs, piano keys, tickling the ivories, all kinds of things were used for ivories. And they would find these ivory graveyards all throughout the wor- uh, northern part of the world where these mammoths were frozen. There's all kinds of even, t- <laughs> mar- uh, all these places here show significant uh, frozen mammoth and rhinoceros found findings. Rhinoceros is not something you usually associate with the Ice Age, but they would find these mammoths up there with rhinoceros as well. Now, when we start considering what freezes the mammoths, there's several things that we have to take in consideration when we find how cold does it have to be in order to freeze a mammoth. Here are some things to take in consideration. First of all, they were frozen upright, meaning they were standing up and found standing up when they were frozen. That means they weren't laying down. They weren't all toppled over. I heard one theory once where the mammoths just got confused and they followed each other off a cliff and fell down in the cliff. Well, that would imply broken bones and lying down dead. These mammoths that are found all throughout the northern part of the world are found frozen standing upright. That's pretty significant. In addition, these mammoths were found with undigested food in their mouth and stomach. Now, when you die, your stomach acids don't realize you're dead and they continue to keep working. That these mammoths were frozen so quickly that they still had undigested food in their mouth and in their stomach. Again, implying that they were frozen quickly. What's more, they died of suffocation. No water was found in their lungs, meaning that they had to be frozen quickly, if not because of the cold air, that water, that snow would be put in there. They didn't die of, of um, drowning. They died of suffocation. They couldn't breathe. So whatever they were, they were frozen standing up, frozen quickly, and they were frozen so much where they couldn't expand out. They couldn't breathe. They didn't die because of the cold getting inside of their lungs. They died of suffocation. (coughs) Excuse me. What else do we need to consider in order to freeze a mammoth? They also had small ice crystals found within the blood. Now this is significant too, that in order to have ice crystals form inside of the blood, it shows that you had to have been frozen rapidly. It had to be frozen rapidly, meaning that it wasn't just surviving Wisconsin winter. This was something that had to flash freeze them quickly. (laughs) Now, Uh, Because of all of this evidence, the mammoths had to be frozen less than five hours. Now, why is this important? Because when you start freezing something on the outside, the inside doesn't necessarily freeze. And so as it freezes on the outside, it will actually create an insulation barrier. And what will happen is that the creature will start rotting from the inside out because Uh, it's not completely frozen. The whole thing had to be frozen all the way through. Now, in case you need a reminder, mammoths are pretty big animals. That means it has to be a fairly significant temperature in order to freeze them. I have a friend of mine or someone I know who had actually did some research. And so he decided he was going to call a... um, (laughs) someone who specializes in freezing. And so he asked them, what would it take to uh, freeze a mammoth. 
Well, the guy kind of thought about it and was kind of confused a little bit. Yeah, and I need to freeze them within five hours. What temperature do I need in order to freeze a mammoth standing up, uh, suffocation that he had small crystals, undigested food. You had to freeze them all the way through. He had to be frozen solid in five hours. What are the temperatures required to freeze a mammoth? That's a pretty good question. The scientific answer to this is negative 3,000 degrees below zero. Negative 3,000 is pretty cold. That is even colder than Wisconsin. In fact, how cold is that? Well, the coldest temperature ever recorded in history, since we've been recording it, was in August 10th of 2010. A negative 93 degrees Celsius. Now, for those of you who are American, you may not understand Celsius. So what is that Fahrenheit? Negative 135 degrees below zero. Now that's pretty cold. I don't want to be caught in that, but it is not cold enough to freeze a mammoth. In order to freeze a mammoth, it has to be negative 3000 degrees below zero. And we find frozen mammoth all over the place. So there had to be an event that happened outside of the normal course of the earth. In the earth, the coldest temperature is negative 135. We need negative 3000 degrees. So what happened in order to freeze all of these mammoths? That's a pretty interesting question. We believe, this is our theory, that 3,000 uh, 3, degree below zero ice mediator came through the solar system. And as it came through the solar system, it also cratered the earth. It cratered the planets, making rings around some of the planets. <coughs> we have evidence of cratering in all of the planets around us. Something had to make an impact to make all of those craters. Whether it was on Mercury, whether it was on um, <clears throat> the moon, they had evidence of all of these craters of something hitting these planets. With that, we also have around <laughs> the inner planets an asteroid belt that a lot of these things were knocked into place during the time. We also have around Saturn ice pieces of ice surrounding the planet. Where did that ice come from? Well, could it have been from this big comet that had hit um, Earth at one time, and this got caught in, in Saturn's ring system. Well, as the comet approached the Earth, it shattered in space, and the super cold ice snowed on the Earth, mostly around the poles. Now, why are we saying uh, it shattered on the Earth? Well, in Wisconsin, we're also familiar with snowballs. Now, one of the things about snowballs is that the faster you throw them, the more that they'll break apart, the faster and faster they go. And so as this ice comet is going towards Earth, get, gets caught in the gravitational pull, it's going to start breaking apart. And these pieces are going to start shattering all throughout uh, surrounding areas, the moon and cratering other things. It's also going to break apart and it's going to get caught within the magnetic poles. That the Earth is, of course, surrounded by a magnetic field, and the magnetic field keeps a charge. Now, something significant about ice is that ice, super cold, is easily static charged. So as the ice breaks apart and is super uh, 
<clears throat> statically charged, it's going to get caught in the magnetic poles and it's going to actually break apart and go to either side of the magnetic poles and rain down there, causing an ice age to extend from the poles and move towards the center. And just as it crashes, it makes that significant hit. Now the canopy of water overhead crumbled. So as this ice meteor hit, it disrupted the canopy of water that we believe surrounded the earth. When it disrupted this, it caused to break down that uh, ferromagnetic shell that it hydrogen had isolated into. When it broke it apart, these the water began to come down in entire vortexes and rain down upon the earth, causing what we call the Genesis flood or the flood with Noah. As it water uh, disrupted, the crust under the earth was also disrupted and burst up, helping cause the flood waters, which we had talked about last week. Leaving the Genesis flood and the ice age happening simultaneously that this is the same event, that the ice age was towards the poles extending out while we also had the earth be flooded by, <coughs> excuse me, by water. And we find all kinds of evidence of this theory about this ice mediator hitting the earth all over the place. Scientists have studied and come to the conclusion, where did we get water on Mars? Could it be from that ice mediator that hit everything? The water was not natural to Mars itself. And a recent find in a place in Russia, they found frozen bison. You guys are familiar with bison. We have some right around a couple miles away. They found frozen bobcats, mammoths, and camels. You say, well, these things don't match together. Neither do mammoths. Do you know that the mammoth's fur is not meant to live in cold temperatures? It is made to live in warm temperatures. That the type of fur that it has when snow uh, snows upon it, it actually mats to the fur and weighs it down. It's not made to live in cold climates. So these creatures here are, are what we would call warm weather climates, and yet they're found frozen together in all of these places in Russia, Siberia, and Alaska. We find all of these evidences. Something had happened that was different. We know that when they did... Uh, <coughs> Uh, the campaigns going to Antarctica near the South Pole, they would find under the ice palm trees. That's pretty significant. That's a long way from Palm Beach or Florida, isn't it? They would find frozen palm trees underneath the ice. Scientists have found dinosaur fossils of plant-eating dinosaurs 400 miles from the South Pole. Now, is a reminder that today we don't have plants that are growing in Antarctica. How do these plant-eating dinosaurs survive down in Antarctica in the conditions we have today? They obviously couldn't. Conditions had to have been different. We have discovery of thousands of well-preserved leaves in Antarctica. That it shows that in Antarctica, they had at one time a near temperate climate. Well, that matches our model before of what the flood, uh, what the Garden of Eden was like, that it was a, <clears throat> that it was a uniform temperature from pole to equator to pole, and that something had disrupted that. And we believe that this is the explanation for it. 
that in Antarctica, 250 miles from the South Pole, they found leaves on the side of a cliff. Now, these leaves are significant because they still retain their cellular structure and organic content, meaning that they were not fossils. They were still frozen leaves with their cellular structure. They didn't turn to stone and turn into a fossil. They're still leaves that had been frozen for all of these years. Something had happened in Antarctica that had changed it from a temperate climate to the frozen tundra that it is today. They found a hadrosaur outside of Alaska, this, this discovery find. <laughs> Now, we know that there's a difference between North Pole and uh, Magnetic North Pole. Now, that doesn't mean much to us unless you're up there with a, with a um, <coughs> compass to be able to find out where you're at. Up here, North is still North. But with the Magnetic North is where the Ice Age and the um, <coughs> Ice Mediator would have fallen and begin to spread out from there. Instantly freezing the mammoths because of the 3,000 below zero ice mediator that had devastated everything and helped cause the precipitation for the flood to help disrupt what the earth was like before the flood in the Garden of Eden model and then be destroyed causing an instant ice age and causing a flood that destroyed the world leaving evidence causing an instant ice age that we have proof and evidence of that there was an ice age. Now, <laughs> something else, in order for rain to fall, we had talked about before, that in the book of Genesis, it made reference that before the flood, it had never rained. That mean, that's important because before the flood, we didn't have the conditions for rain. What type of things do we need for rain? Well, first of all, we need a cold front. As a cold front comes in and moves against a warm front, it goes underneath the warm front, pushing the warm air up. As the warm air goes up, it turns cold and it causes it to rain <coughs> through it. They needed that cold front. Well, do you think a negative 3,000 degree, um, <coughs> excuse me, negative 3,000 degree ice mediator would cause a cold front when it hit? Absolutely it would, which again would devastate the canopy. In addition, in order for rain to be heavy enough to fall, it also needed dust nuclei inside of each raindrop to make it heavy enough to fall. If you have an ice meteor that crashes and hits towards the ground and causes a lot of dust to come up, do you think that would definitely cause it? So with this, it disrupted everything and allowing it to rain in an instant and causing it with the cold front, with the dust nuclei, having the moisture up in the air. All of these things were a factor in causing the rains to fall. Now, over the next few hundred years, the ice caps generally retreated. So all of those people talking about global warming, here you go. We actually agree to a point. It's not because of man's pollution. It's because we used to be warmer and then there was a mediator that hit and it slowly was melting the ice caps. And as it did, it caused the water to, um, to be formed. And as the cold water began to absorb more carbon dioxide, also lifespans began to shorten within those animals within the ocean. 
The lower water levels meant that the continents were all connected at one time or another. They still teach us in the textbooks that the continents were once connected. We could see that in what we call the continental shelves. Population spread out through the globe. That we even believe that there was a crossing to the Americas on both ends because of the continental shelf. People were able to walk from Russia to America. They were able to walk to England, to Greenland, over to America because they were all connected. <coughs> of course, when the <laughs> glaciers hit and as they retreated, they would also leave evidence that as the glaciers would hit, the water would run off and instantly carving canyons. And they would carve specific patterns that they could be able to say this is evidence of a glacier melting. And we could find all kinds of evidence in the terrain that's from those those areas. Now the melting ice made the oceans deeper, wider, and colder. As it did, it began to cover up that continental shelf and covering it with water, which people used to be able to live on before. Now it's now flooded by the ocean as the ocean expanded. As this happened, it would also cause Europe to be have what we call the Mediterranean Sea. The average continental shelf around Europe is less than 150 feet. That means if the oceans were lower just a bit, that you could easily cross them from Europe to go to England. England at one time was part of the land of Europe. Now, as the oceans filled from the melting ice, the Mediterranean Sea would be backfilled. As it would be backfilled, it would cause the Mediterranean Sea level to rise up and bury some of the cities that were built up on the coast. We find ancient cities all the time underneath the water. They just recently found an Egyptian city that's under the water that used to be above the water. They find evidence of it that they could go and explore. Now, as the oceans filled from the melting ice, the Mediterranean would backfill and the Black Sea would end up black backfilling. They find all kinds of ancient cities underneath the water of the Black Sea, showing that the water level was lower at one time and now has covered up those cities that were once on the coast. <coughs> now, with this, Let's ask a question. Does the flood model work? All of this is kind of theory. All of this we think we have evidence for it, but it's theory and we're kind of explaining and working together. But is there any kind of evidence that shows that what we're saying about the flood last week and the things that we're saying about the ice age this week, that it is true? Or are we just um, using our imagination? Well, may I present to you this evidence of Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens blew in my lifetime. I was still a baby then, but it still was in my lifetime. Some of you were a little bit older that you remember. It was a pretty significant event. It is America's only active volcano. So it was a big event for those who survived during that time, not survived, that lived and that were thriving in the 80s. Uh, but when it blew, it was a very significant event that the northern slope slid down the mountain, and as it did, the northern slope uh, 
uh, was un, um, slid down, the volcano was on court, releasing ash and steam. What I'm going to show you is a video rendering of a photographer. A photographer took many pictures. These pictures are very famous. He happened to be outside of Mount St. Helens taking pictures when it blew up. Now, in the 80s, we didn't have the nice camera system that we have there. So he's just snapping shot after shot after shot. What they've done is they've taken all of his pictures and rendered them together through computer graphics and made a video that showed what it looked like using the photographer's pictures. <clears throat> so what happens is that the side of the mountain is going to be sliding down, all these things disrupting, and the whole mountain begins to slide. As it begins to slide, it's going to uncork and it is going to blow up throwing tons of ash and debris all over the place. Now, again, this was just pictures uh, uh, that were put together. But it, as it blew, it blew a lot of particles up in the air. Just scattering it everywhere, putting dust and ash all over the place. You could see it for hundreds of miles away. I this uh, forgot exactly where this picture was taken at, but this was hundreds of miles away from Mount St. Helens, and that's what the skies look like. All that is ash fixing to rain down upon this town. So much so that it buried entire cars. All that is ash and dust that came from Mount St. Helens. It just buried everything. Helicopters couldn't fly during the time it was getting into their intakes. Here is an actual satellite photo of Mount St. Helens blowing up, being captured, and all of that dust being blown everywhere. It was such a significant thing, they could actually see it from the satellites, causing it just to be spread all over the place. <laughs> Here is a map that they had of where the dust ended up settling. It went as far down in significant events all the way to Oklahoma. That's a long way from Washington state. Ash covered everything. Now, when the ash covered everything, it had also covered up the natural river systems around Mount St. Helens, which would include the Turtle River system. It covered the Turtle River system, and the rivers did not have access to the Pacific Ocean anymore for a long, significant times. Now, with this, Mount St. Helens was a little burp compared to the other um, volcanoes that we have recorded. It was a very tiny, small volcano. We have other volcanoes that have been much, much larger that devastated uh, the world around them. But Mount St. Helens was big enough that it put ash and buried everything. Here is another picture, overhead picture. All of that is where the dust had settled after Mount St. Helens. It buried everything everything. Mount St. Helens blew out enough material for everyone on earth to have a ton. So you could have your own ton of material kicked out by the volcano. That's pretty big. It would fill a 10 cubic yard dump truck every second, 24 hours a day for 600 years. That's how much dust had gotten kicked out. That's a significant event. Now the dust would cover <coughs> the snow 
And um, as it would cover the snow, what would happen is that these blocks of ice would then melt but they didn't have anywhere to go. So the gases underneath that mud would begin to um, form up until they would finally explode and create little craters. And so for the next two years, they would have explosions going off all over Mount St. Helens from these melted ice that were covered by the gas, uh, by the um, ash and by the mud. And it would slowly melt, have the gas, the gas would expand, finally just erupt, (laughs) blowing up and making canyons. This was one canyon that was made because of the ice that had blown up and kicking off that hot rock. We find these all over Mount St. Helens, including entire canyon systems that were built in nine hours. Outside of Spirit Lake in the upper Turtle Valley, the ash had covered up the valley's mouth. And then for 22 months, the water didn't have any way to get to the specific ocean. Then finally, in March 19th of 1982, a year and a half later, 22 months, in nine hours, as these waters began to scoop through, it carved out entire canyons overnight while no one was looking. And it reopened the way to Pacific Ocean. There was three canyons that were at least 100 feet deep. One of them was named the Little Grand Canyon because it was 140th the scale model of the Grand Canyon. And so this is one of those things that was built. This is an entire canyon that was built in nine hours. Not millions and millions of years, but in nine hours. Here is another one where they have a human dam now parking it, but it was something that was carved out of this river system. Here's another picture of it. This was carved in nine hours. This again is the canyon today. This new canyon formed in a few hours by rapid water flow. So with this canyon, it's a thousand feet wide and 140 feet deep. Made in nine hours. This did not happen in millions and millions of years. Nine hours. Now, it also has strata, just like the Grand Canyon. If you go in the Grand Canyon, you see strata like this. The scientists would like to tell you that each one of these little layers here were millions and millions of years. It's not. It was made in nine hours. And this strata here, what it looks like strata, was actually the river ripping through and carving the sides of the canyon as it washed through. Thousands of layers were formed in a few minutes. So this little river down here did not make this canyon. Could we agree with that? It was made in nine hours. By the way, this little river here did not make this canyon either. We'll talk more about that next week. There's no way this little river could make this large canyon. It had to be something that was done rapidly in a flood model. But yet in the textbooks, they're going to tell you that over millions of years, that Colorado River had carved out the Grand Canyon. We'll talk about this next week and show why it's impossible. And yet they still teach it in the textbooks, even though they know it's impossible. Now, something else that happened with Mount St. Helens is not only did they blow off the ash, but it also blew off all the trees off of Mount St. Helens. And they landed into Spirit Lake. This is a floating tree bed in Spirit Lake. All of these were trees that were on Mount St. Helens that got blown off. That is a lot of trees. 
just tons of trees. They were so thick that people could walk across it just walking on these logs that were floating on the lake, Spirit Lake. You could see it overhead. You could see the little carving here. All of these here are trees on Spirit Lake that had been knocked into the river or into that lake. They were hauling out trees as much as they could, trying to salvage and use what trees they could since they were getting knocked out. They were just having operations 24-7, trying to clear out as many trees as they possibly could that was knocked out. Now, one of the things that we're able to do with these trees is study them and to see how they worked. That what happens is that these trees, they become waterlogged, and as they get waterlogged, they begin to face up and down. Then they sink down to the bottom and they're slowly buried in strata over these years. So they tip over and begin to face upward. As they get upward, they'll get, go to the bottom and get buried. And what it will look like is that these trees are going through all of these geological errors of strata. And they weren't. They were just knocked off in a disaster. Scientists have estimated that there are 20,000 trees in the bottom of Spirit Lake. And that many of them are buried upright and already 15 feet deep in sediments. It's even more than that now. So they're already getting buried at different levels. They seem to settle out in species, but they look like a forest. We know that's not uncommon. We find this all throughout the world. We call these polystridate trees, meaning poly meaning many, stridate, stridate is the different strata. These trees seem to go through all of these strata. Now, according to evolutionists, each one of these stratas is millions and millions of years. So it looks like these trees are go growing through millions and millions of years of strata. That means they either grew through the rock or they stood there for millions of years while they were slowly buried. Or could it be because of a disaster that happened that caused them to be rapidly buried and that strata to be laid quickly, not over millions and millions of years. We find them all over the earth. Nova Scotia, you could go see them. Here's this tree that seems to be going through all of these layers of rock. We find them all over the place. It becomes one of those exception, exceptions about the geological table. How does this work? We can't explain why these trees, this must be a hiccup. We can explain it quite quickly by explaining a flood model and everything was laid at the same time because of the flood. Even in Yellowstone, we have a petrified tree. Remember, a petrified tree is a tree that is turned to stone, that is standing straight up. We find them all over the place in Yellowstone. 27 layers of forest over at Specimen Ridge. Now these trees are broken off at the roots, meaning they don't have a root system. They didn't grow there. They were buried there. All throughout these strata, they didn't grow there. Now again, this is a big thing. They had to be laid by a catastrophe, not over millions and millions of years. In addition, we have all over the place, like Arizona, these petrified forests all over the place. These are actual trees that had turned to stone. You could go see them for yourself. They are petrified forests in Arizona. Now, going back to Spirit Lake, as these trees were settling, as they would bump upon each other, they would knock off bark and begin to go into the 
uh, lake as peat. This peat would begin to collect on the bottom and slowly bury things. This layer of bark and organic debris will form coal if the conditions are right. Meaning they could go back to Spirit Lake and one day pull out the coal that was uh, put there because of Mount St. Helens. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, with this, let's make an application. The Bible's very clear. As it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Everyone has a judgment to face. Here is a man by the name of Harry Truman. He is not the president, but he was a man. He was warned repeatedly that Mount St. Helens was going to blow up, but he lived on the mountain. He refused. He made national news. He even got letters of peop- uh, ladies proposing for, uh, to him because of his stand that I'm not getting off the mountain, the government conspiracy, all that other stuff. They had a guy from a radio station, a Christian radio station, go up and spend some time with him and actually witness to him to try to convert him to Christ. His testimony was that he was a very profane man. He listened to what he said, but at the end, he rejected it. Again, over and over, he was warned that Mount St. Helens was going to blow up, but he refused to heed the warning. He was on Mount St. Helens when it blew up. And if he didn't accept Christ as his savior, he's in an awful place called hell today. Now, why is this significant? Because in days of Noah, people were warned over and over that judgment was to come. And they refused to listen. And there is judgment to come whether they believe it or not, whether they accept it or not. The Bible says in Matthew 24, but as in the days of Noah... So just like in Noah's day, when people were being warned, judgment's going to come, judgment's going to come, judgment's going to come. They refused to listen and they refused to obey. Just like the days of Noah were, so is the coming of the son of God. Jesus Christ is coming again. And we've been trying to warn people, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a judgment. And just like in Noah's day, we give the warning and people are not going to listen. We still need to give the warning But people are going to be caught unawares no matter how many warnings they have. The Bible says in Matthew 24, For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating, drinking, (laughs) having, going, marrying, going through life, and knew not till the flood came. So they rejected it all the way till the time the flood came. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That People are still going to ignore all the warnings. They're going to ignore all the, the witnessings. There are going to be some people that are all the way up till Jesus Christ comes are going to be in full denial. But our responsibility is to do whatever we can to warn them, to tell them that Jesus Christ is coming back. Jesus said himself, surely I come quickly. That word quickly carries the idea of suddenly. He's going to come at any moment and he's going to come without warning. The people in Mount St. Helens, they may have been warned that was going to come, but when Mount St. Helens blew up, they had no uh, way to do anything about it. They couldn't get off the mountain. We showed you the pictures of the one photographer who was miles away. There was another photographer who was actually on Mount St. Helens that day. He knew that he was going to die, uh, knew he couldn't get away. He had snapped some pictures, but quickly when he saw the eruption uh, happening, he took his camera, he put it in his bag, wrapped it up, then he laid on his bag knowing he was going to die to preserve the pictures that were in the bag. And those pictures are still preserved today. We still are able to have access to them. 
we know that when that warning comes, that there's not going to be anything they could do about it. That when Jesus Christ comes back, it's going to be with a twinkling in an eye. That it's going to be just in a moment and then there's going to be a rapture. That people have time now, but there's going to be no warning when Jesus comes. He's going to come quickly. Our responsibility is to witness to people knowing that the judgment of God is real. Knowing that there is the judgment that is coming that people need to be warned from. We have a responsibility to witness as much as we can that Jesus is coming soon. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.